Hey everybody, welcome to the Week in Film Tech for December 5th, 2019. This is Charles Hain. I'm here covering that Red Komodo finally has specs on its sensor. I'm here talking about the new video mic NTG from Rode. I'm also going to talk about Knives Out a little bit, because everybody should see Knives Out. Uh, kind of a great movie. Um, Gear Cage, if you're watching this on YouTube... You can see it. If you're listening, you don't know what I'm about to talk about, but I'm going to talk about the Sigma FP. I'm probably going to talk about this twice. I've only had this in my hand for like three or four days. I'm talking about it because I cannot wait to talk about it. But I bet in two weeks I will talk about it again when I've shot with it more because uh, they're letting me keep it for two weeks, uh, which is very nice. Thank you, Sigma. Those of you who don't see it on YouTube, it's really small. All that and a hey professor about backing up your projects this week on the Week in Film Tech. And then music plays... All right. Hey, everybody. Here's the thing. Red Komodo is the new red sensor. Red, if you don't know red, fighting it out for the top of the motion picture industry. Aria Alexa is super dominant. And then there's like red, Sony and Panasonic. Sony and Panasonic, obviously legacy companies, red and upstart from 2006, fighting it out for that like other wave of like, you know, red has all the Fincher shows, Mindhunter and all of those things. And red has a lot of commercials and music videos. Red seems to have a bad reputation right now for reasons I don't understand. I know a lot of younger DPs are like, I only shoot Alexa. I don't like the skin tones on Red. You can get great skin tones out of Red. I don't know what they're talking about. They must have had just a, like, they watched one YouTube review or something. I say as I give a YouTube review. They watched one YouTube review that didn't line up with what they expected skin tone wise. But Red has been slowly leaking out details of their new Komodo sensor for a while. I'm not going to talk about every single detail uh, because Red really smartly, will release a new detail every two weeks, which gets all the tech press and the bloggers and the YouTubers, myself included, to talk about it. So I'm not going to talk about it every week because I just can't. Um, but I do feel like we're in a really interesting place right now. One of the interesting places is that they've talked about Global Shutter for this sensor, which I think is really great. Uh, global Shutter, if you if you don't know Global Shutter, basically Global Shutter means the whole image is captured at one point. A rolling shutter, which is what most video cameras have, have a shutter that starts at the top and then slowly scans to the bottom. Rolling shutters give you all those weird jello-y artifacts where you pan really fast and people look crooked or you're in a helicopter and like everything like rolls jiggly style. The vast majority of cameras you shoot have some sort of rolling shutter artifact. You just want the minimal rolling shutter artifact you can possibly get. But a global shutter has no rolling shutter artifacts altogether. Global shutters are super exciting. There was supposed to be a rolling shutter from this Spanish company Cinemartin, and they were claiming like 8K full frame global shutter, which is like super hard to do. And then I think they went under think they went out of business they were a weird mystery company so red is doing a global shutter with komodo or will have a global shutter mode obviously usually because it's a higher processing power thing usually if you have a global shutter mode you don't have as high a frame rate and then if you want to go up to the super high frame rates you have to switch to rolling shutter uh because the nature of the beast global shutter requires more processing power which means you can't go to as high a frame rate but so they just rolled out the specs and i'm actually going to read the specs 27.03 millimeters by 14 and a quarter millimeters so 6,100 pixels by 3,200 pixels, a 1.9 aspect ratio. So I think this is really interesting and really smart. And as much as Red does some things that annoy me, this is one of the things that Red does that I really like. Red has always been very good. Sony and Panasonic, and to some extent, Aerie, are always very good at, like, we're going to build a thing that fits your existing workflow. Red is very good at, like, we're going to do the future. There's some drawbacks to this, like when they first came out with lenses 10 years ago, and they were like, we have F-stops instead of T-stops, because there was no good reason, and eventually they did 
T-stops like they should have. And they had mini SDI connectors on their first camera, which is insane. Mini SDI connectors do not belong on a camera. They belong, like, inside a circuit board. It's an internal connector. It's not designed for, like, robust film set use. They, they haven't done that since. They've accepted full-size SDR connectors are part of their life. But I like that about RED. I like their willingness to be like, who cares about the past? So what's interesting to me about this sensor size is, you know, it's roughly Super 35 millimeter sized. But what it really is, is it's much shorter than Super 35 millimeter, much wider. 1.9 to 1 native aspect ratio. There's a great Phil Holland, the DP who does a lot of info stuff, has a great comparison on his site between this sensor size and Super 35 3Perf which was a 35 millimeter format that only pulled down three perfs of film every frame instead of four. It's roughly as tall as three perf, a little taller and much wider. And here's the thing. Very few people shoot square anymore. I mean, there's a few people. Gus Van Sant does it on occasional movies. And I, every once in a while I have a student who's like, I'm going to shoot one by one and good for them. And I respect it. The vast majority of content is 16 by nine. The vast, vast, vast majority of content is 16, nine. And if you want to be on Disney plus, you know, they just reformatted all those old Simpsons episodes into, uh, they stretched the episodes of the Simpsons into looking all weird and terrible in order to fit them in 16 by nine. Cause they didn't want anything on Disney plus to have bars, which okay. Disney plus, uh, I think they're going to fix it next year. They claim regardless point remains. I love a 1.9 native aspect ratio sensor. I love that it's wider than super 35, but shorter. Uh, I feel like, you know, they're not trying to fit in a full frame or traditional Super 35. They're trying to make a sensor that works. I feel like it's going to be a really, you know, because it's a smaller sensor, it's going to be easier for global shutter. Global shutter is easier on, and you get less rolling shutter artifacts on smaller sensors than you do on bigger sensors. That's why when everybody first got their hands on a 5D Mark II, which is a big full frame sensor, they were all like, oh my God, this is so great. It looks so great in low light, but then I pan and it all turns to jello. So I really think that I'm personally very interested in, this Komodo sensor size, I think they landed on. I think it's a, a sort of a smart space because I personally don't think Super 35 is dead. I love shooting full frame and LXLF two weeks ago or Alexa mini LF two weeks ago. I did an LXLF thing over the summer and I really enjoy them, but I certainly don't enjoy them on every job. And I think that there's a lot of jobs where I want a little more depth of field <laughs> so that I stand a shot of getting it in focus. And I think the Komodo is going to be that sensor for a lot of people. Um, so those specs are finally out. I will probably end up talking about the red Komodo again, at some point or another. Also, the price point's supposed to be insanely good. It's apparently going to be under 10 grand or something if you own a Hydrogen 1, which, good for you, Red. I mean, I like it when you nail those insanely good price points, which you do sometimes. Up next, Rode has come out with the new VideoMic NTG. You probably already know what the Rode VideoMic is, but I'll give you a little bit of context if you don't. So the Rode VideoMic is sort of one of the two or three big dominant microphones for putting a nice microphone on your DSLR, right? When the 5D Mark II and the GH3 first came out and everybody was shooting with these tiny little cameras that had terrible onboard mics, we know we're not going to get the best sound in the world with an onboard bike, right? You want a mic on a boom, you want a lavalier, you want to get closer to the source of sound. But honestly, even if it's just a scratch track, even if it's just a backup for waveform sync, which again, waveform sync is your last choice. First choice, time code, second choice, late third choice waveform, but it's still a nice backup. Or if you're doing a run and gun dock thing, you want an on-camera microphone that gives you that kind of robust setup. So the video mic was the first big microphone that did that, that was really designed for, I'm just trying to think of the cameras it would have been back in the day, 5D Mark II, XLH1, those kind of cameras where it was like, we want to have controls on the microphone. We want a microphone that'll give us line out or mic out or whatever it is that'll, that'll match. And we want a, a microphone that will give us that kind of better audio sound 
while working with a camera that wasn't designed for sound recording at all. So that's Rode VideoMic. Uh, and they just came out with the NTG, which I think is really interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, first off, you know, Rode does a lot of acoustical research, and they, they sound very nice. They have a very nice flat frequency response. You can be able to really get nice sounding audio out of it if you are close to your source. So if you're doing something where you're like holding a camera in someone's face, it's going to get you much better than the just built-in mic in your camera. It also has a nice little isolation system built in so that if your camera is shaking around, the mic shouldn't get all of that noise from it. And again, it outputs line level or mic level. It'll, it'll auto sense if it's plugged into a camera, which is usually TRS or in, into like a phone, which will be TRRS. So if you're doing something where you're shooting iPhone video and you want a better microphone, which a lot of people do, uh, you could use this for iPhone video and plug it in and get better audio out of your iPhone video. Cause it'll, if you have a phone that still has an audio connector or if you use the lightning adapter on one of the newer phones. So yeah, it's pretty cool. However, the coolest thing about this is it is set up both as your on-camera putting out line level microphone and a USB mic. Now, why is that so interesting? I mean, maybe it's just because I podcast, but I feel like everybody should own a nice USB mic because if nothing else, the ability to like just quickly plug it into a computer and record audio is a useful thing to have in the world. And uh, I can't tell you the number of times I've been in an edit session and we wanted to just dummy up some ADR or we wanted to dummy up some VO before sending it to a client or we wanted to put in scratch or, you know, or sometimes like we're editing, you know, it's not final, but you'll walk the actors to a quiet room and you'll record some quick ADR straight with a USB mic straight into the laptop. It's not ideal. It's not final. You're going to go into a, a final music suite later. But it's a really nice feature to have. I've been surprised lately as we, as I start doing more of this podcasting stuff and trying to coordinate guests and doing interviews and stuff, the sheer number of filmmakers who don't have a local recording setup. You know, if you're a filmmaker and you're thinking about promoting your work through podcasts, I think having something that you can just quickly plug in USB and you could do a remote interview, someone could call you, that kind of thing is a really nice feature. Also, when it's in USB mode, you can plug in a headphone. And you can monitor what it's hearing with your headphones when it's in USB mode, which I think is pretty cool. You know, as filmmakers, having an on-camera mic and a USB mic both is great. But if you're only going to get one, having one that can do both jobs is probably the smart way to go. And as far as I know, as of right now, that is the Rode NTG as the option. All right, third bit of headlines. This is a weird one for the week in film tech, but I really wanted to talk about Knives Out. So first off, if you don't know the cinematographer, Steve Yedlin, uh, you should follow him on Twitter. You should go to uh, the Yed blog, his website. He's a very fascinating cinematographer. You will run into cinematographers like this. There are also DPs who are like, I live purely in the world of light and music, and I don't know any of the technical stuff. I know some DPs like that. They're great. Yedlin is in a different category of the, I, I craft beautiful images, and I want to understand every single thing about crafting those images. So there's a great article in Studio Daily. I will include a link to this uh, that he tweeted out where he talks about the image processing pipeline for Knives Out. Yedlin has dived very deep into a pipeline that he feels like is, is truly camera agnostic, where when he's making camera decisions, it's not about color science because he feels like he can handle all the color science processing on the back end. So he, you know, they shot the Alexa Mini because they like the form factor and they like the formats it could shoot and that was enough to make them go Alexa mini way more than something like color science, which is really interesting because everyone's so obsessed about color science, but he has developed so many image processing tools that he feels like he can get the images you want from whatever camera. So he picks cameras based on other factors, which is a very interesting thing. And, um, but then knives out is beautiful and knives out has some really 
very well executed, very sophisticated visual design. You know, there's like a, a color palette evolution that happens in that movie. And there's a use of sort of like warm, cool contrast on people's faces that you not always the safest moves, you know, mixing that blue light into the fill, that blue light into the kick isn't something you think of it as, as much more of a like horror thrillery kind of thing, not like a classic Hollywood whodunit kind of thing. And uh, there's a lot of really, like, beautiful, subtle work there. And I think it's interesting. I think it's a good reminder that if you're interested in this stuff, check out Yedlin's blog. He does a lot of very deep dives into display tech, into wine language, into lens aberrations, really trying to identify, like, what are the things that we actually want from our images? And what are the things that we have, like, an emotional attachment to but we don't actually like? So, like, for instance, they wanted some aspects of anamorphic, but not all. So they shot spherical, and then they developed processing and post to deliver some anamorphic benefits without having to shoot anamorphic lenses and deal with the drawbacks. Really interesting. I also genuinely enjoyed Knives Out. There's a very interesting conversation to be had about it. Um, but this is the Week in Film Tech podcast. So we're just going to focus on the technology, and I think it is uh, really worth looking at Knives Out from that place and really looking at the cinematography of Yedlin in terms of like, he is so focused on visual authorship, meaning he has images he wants to create and he will figure out whatever tools he needs to do to get there to author those images, which I think is a really good way to think about cinematography is to think about like, there are images we are, tr we are striving for. It's not about capturing. It's not about shooting. It's about creating. It's about crafting. And I think that's a really interesting take. And, uh, yeah. So I will be including that in the weekly email list. All right, up next, Gear Cage. So I hold in my hands, because Sigma is very nice, thank you, Sigma, a Sigma FP. I try not to do too much that's YouTube only, but I'm going to go ahead and take the lens off. And so you YouTubers can see, first off, the sensor. It's a full-frame sensor. And you YouTubers can also see exactly how small this is. If you're not a YouTube, if you're not watching this on YouTube, you're just listening. It's bigger than a pack of cards or a pack of cigarettes, but it doesn't feel that much bigger than a pack of cards or a pack of cigarettes. Basically picture a slightly large pack of cards with a lens mount on it. Why is this amazing? So first off, to be clear, it's a full frame sensor that shoots video. The 5D Mark II was a full frame sensor that shot video 10 years ago. So full frame sensors that shoot video isn't that amazing. It's a full frame sensor that does internal 4K, but I think the 5D Mark IV has been doing that for four or five years. So the full frame 4K thing, not also that exciting. The exciting thing is the physical smallness of the body, right? And obviously color sound always gets better and the images actually look quite nice. I haven't shot a ton with it yet. I've only added a day. But in the day, I've shot as much with it as I could, and it's super duper pretty, and I really like it. I've been very impressed with what I've shot with it. But the interesting thing about all this is heat. Here's the deal. And if you're watching this on YouTube, I'm going to hold this up to the lens, and you should be able to see all these right by my fingers. I'll take the photos right by my fingers. There we go. I finally made it look nice. The whole thing is surrounded by these massive vents. Right? I never, I didn't really appreciate this when I saw the press photos, and this is my first time holding it in person, but I didn't really get until I saw exactly how many vents there are. So here's the thing. Full-frame sensor kicks up a lot of heat. Processing that images in 4K kicks up a lot of heat. So the fact that it's basically surrounded with two sides of it have these giant, three, three and a half sides of it have these giant vents make total sense, right? 
because you want a giant screen on the back, so you can't have vents on the back. So they surround that whole giant screen with these massive vents, and then they designed... Basically, you can think of this thing as a massive heat sink, just trying to dissipate all the heat it generates, which is super cool, if you ask me, and I think it's really interesting. I think a lot of people are going to buy this. I might even buy it. I don't know. And the reason why I think a lot of people are going to buy this, whether or not you want to shoot with it, it has this amazing mode, and that amazing mode is Director's Finder mode. And I will go ahead and turn Director's Finder mode on while we are hanging up here. Director's Finder mode is a mode that previews for you the frame lines of any of a variety of different sensors. So, because it's a full frame, it can preview for you area LF. So let's say I'm on an LF job, and let's say I'm working on a job with a full-size LF body. That full-size LF body is a heavy body. It is not a lightweight body. It is a big monster body. Uh, it feels a little bit like back in the, like when you were shooting 35 and you had 1,000-foot mags. It's a, it's, a, it's a bear. When you shop for shots, I know a lot of people shop with Artemis, and Artemis is great, but Artemis is just giving you a preview of what it guesses different lenses will look like. And they've actually done a really great job, but... This allows me to take the actual physical lens I'm shooting on set with all of the aberrations that comes with all of the way that particular lens maps the world, right? Because Artemis, great app, love it, use it all the time. Artemis is previewing as close as it can get, but it can't really, especially because it's on those tiny sensors, really recreate exactly the field of view of a lens. But I have the physical lens I'm shooting with. I take it out of the case, I put it on the Sigma FP, and now I'm blocking the scene. I'm looking at my shots, and I can even record it. Now, unfortunately, and this is actually something that I should have waited till two weeks to talk about, I've yet to figure out how to record Director's Finder mode internally. When I record shots from the Director's Finder, the Director's Finder stuff goes away, which I actually don't want. What I really want is a mode where it records the Director's Finder video or stills with all of that overlay built into the image it's recording. I haven't figured out how to do that yet. I bet I figure it out in the next two weeks. Or I will confirm with Sigma that it can't do that, in which case I will tell Sigma they really need to make that a firmware thing. Because what I want is I want to be able to do a whole blocking of the scene. And, you know, everybody's moving around and we're figuring it all out and we're blocking our shots. And then, you know, I'm saying, all right, well, let's see this on the 32. And we get this out on the 32. And I don't have to move the whole thing around. And I can block the whole shot out and I can get actually really precise more precise than you can get with Artemis. And then I can click stills. Okay, I like this. And then I like this. And I like that. And I like this position. And then we're all set. Pull the stills out on the SD card. Or maybe they're wireless to the laptop. And then I, you know, I make a photo board right then and there that the whole crew can see. So we can all know what shots we're moving through for the rest of the shots. That's what I want. And it's super great that it has that mode built in. And that it's reasonably accurate with all of the different focal length settings. So I think... A lot of people are going to be buying this camera to be their location scout slash director's finder on set camera. Because, you know, it's also something you can set up as a C camera. It shoots 4K. It does 4K internal. Uh, is its 4K going to match Area Alexa? Probably not. You're probably not going to have the latitude out of an $1,800 pack of cards that you get out of an $80,000 camera. But you're still going to be able to get 4K images. So this I can really see as a director's finder slash ccam thing that most director dps are going to end up buying at some point in the near future so highly highly fun two days playing with it and uh, i will have more reports on the sigma fp in a couple of weeks 
before I, or maybe after I've sent it back to Sigma. If there are questions you guys have about the Sigma FP, feel free to hit me up on Twitter. I've got it for at least another week before I have to ship it back and I'll play with it some more. All right, final item of the week. Hey, Professor. Hey, Professor, what's the best way to long-term store camera original media and preserve edit sessions? Also, I'm supposed to plug my book discount. ADS19, if you go to Rutledge.com, uh, which is the Focal Press's parent company, and use the holiday, the code ADS19, you get a 30% discount on my books. All right. Hey, Professor, how do you back up your projects? So let's talk about this in two different ways. First off, how do I physically back up my projects? So I use the cheapest hard drives I can find, just like re- bare, empty serial ATA SATA drives. They're all in my safe right now, but I have a safe. I back them up on there, and then I put them on something called uh, Amazon Glacier. I use an app called Cloudberry to do it because that's the cheapest online storage I can find. Uh, if you have Amazon issues, which some people do, uh, you can also look at Microsoft Azure. Google has some sort of cloud cold storage. So there's two kinds of cloud storage. There's hot storage, which is easily available, and cold storage, which is slow. Cold storage is usually about a third the price, but it'll take like 24 hours to get your files. So that's why I use Amazon Glacier. It's super cheap. Um, So I have a copy in my local safe, copy in the cloud, and that's my backup solution. And the copy in my local safe is just a standard serial ATA hard disk drive, sits in my safe, does nothing. Um, and then in five years when that doesn't work, cause hard drives that sit, I mean, I try and fire them all up once a year, but sometimes I forget Then I go to the cloud for the backup from there. So that's my backup. But what do I do about backing up a whole project? So I will be honest. I'm not as good about this as I used to be, but when I had a production company in a post house, when I backed up projects, I always backed up two extra things with the project. I always backed up the install disk image for every single piece of software. Now this is much harder with Premiere than it used to be because I don't quite know how it works with Creative Cloud, but you used to be able to like Final Cut 7 would have a disk image.dmg or uh, DaVinci Resolve. Now I save every single version of DaVinci Resolve. Uh, Mac has this annoying thing where every time you install new software, it says, do you want to move the install file to the trash? I never do that. I have a whole Dropbox folder of just every Resolve installer I've ever used going back, I think to Resolve. 11 or 12 might go back to 10 because I want them all. And the reason I want them all is you never know when someone's going to come back four years later and be like, Oh, Hey, we just got a new release. Can you reopen that project? And you know, you're going to have to charge them through the nose to do it, but you want the ability to do it if you can. So I save the installers for all the software I use. And I try and make sure that like, if I did a project in Resolve 14, when I archive that project, when I wrap that project up, I put the installer for Resolve 14 in that archive folder to make sure it's preserved. I also have on occasion kicked out an XML as a backup. Never used it, but I've kicked it out. And then here's the tricky thing that I used to do and I wish I could still do is preserve versions of Mac OS, which used to be really easy because you could get an installer for Mac OS. Because one thing that'll happen that you guys will soon discover is if I wanted to install Final Cut 7 right now and I had a machine running Catalina, I couldn't do it. So if I had a project that really needed me to open Final Cut 7, you know, 10 years later, somebody's movie got picked up. Uh, I guess one example is like 10 years later, somebody made a movie and now that person's super famous and they want to recut the movie so they have more of that person's scenes in it so that they can release it. That's a thing that happens. I would need an older version of Mac OS that I could install on a machine that would open up Final Cut 7. So if you want to be really thorough, you back up the OS and the application and the project file and an XML. 
I don't know how to back up the OS anymore. I'm sure if you go online, someone knows how to do it. I don't, I, at this point, I mostly just back up the project file and the installer for the program. I worked in Resolve. I back up the installer for Resolve, and that treats me really well. That is my workflow, and I think it treats me great. All right, guys, so that is another week in the Week in Film Tech. Uh, keep hitting me up with your questions for Hey Professor. Keep hitting me up with your questions on the Sigma FP, and I will see you guys all next week. Subscribe to the podcast wherever you subscribe. Tell your friends about it. Go to our mailing list, and you'll get a reminder every week when the episode comes out with links to stories I talked about. And away we go. Weekinfilmtech.com. <laughs>